Hello, this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us here at Merge in downtown Iowa City. This is the kickoff event of the 2019 Provost Global Forum, the UI's premier annual event focused on international and global issues. The forum brings together experts from the faculty and leading voices from a variety of areas to raise awareness about and contribute to debate on the foremost issues in globalization facing us today. This year's forum, Why School? International Perspectives on Education and Social Transformation, will examine education in a global context, both as a reflection of social norms and as a powerful force for change. The public is encouraged to attend forum events, and you can find a full schedule at the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. A highlight event will be the Joel Barkin Memorial Lecture, given by Supriya Bailey on Friday at 7 o'clock in the Hyatt Place Hotel. Uh, we hope you can attend that. We're honored to have a very special group of UI faculty and international guests on today's program. In this first segment, I'd like to welcome Amanda Tyne, uh, Associate Dean and Professor in the University of Iowa College of Education. Thank you for being here. Thanks, John. Mm -hmm. And next to her is David Bills, a professor in the UI College of Education. Thank you so much, David. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. So um, the purpose of schooling in society, I guess that's kind of the, the main question we're asking. Our society, other societies, how does it work? Why does it work that way? Uh, what changes might be afoot? And um, um, how does education affect social transformations of one sort or another? It's obviously a big topic, and I know the forum will be awfully interesting. Um, but Amanda, here in this program, um, I wonder if you could give us an overview, sort of an introduction to the notion that school both reflects or exhibits social values and philosophies, and then also um, sometimes nudges us towards social transformation. I, th I think that the uh, Provost Global Forum, uh, Why Schools, is going to give us a chance to really think about the ways in which schools reflect some of the ambitions and goals that different societies across the globe have, and also sometimes replicates, reproduces um, some of the problems that those that various societies have. And I think you can see that, for instance, in US schools, which is where I have the most expertise. Um, I think we often think of US schools um, as great equalizers for students. It's a place where we imagine that all students can succeed, all students can have um, opportunities to start a successful adulthood. You see that in the names of some of our national reform policies. So for instance, every child succeeds, um, no child left behind. So I think that, that some of those ideas about um, K-12 schools as being places of, um, of, of equity and where everyone has a chance to succeed are really grounded and some of our American ideals. So ideas about fairness, uh, ideas about equity, and some ideas that are problematic about meritocracy, about um, individualism, about the idea that any person can succeed um, if, they, if they try hard and if they persist, mm -hmm. um, sort of a pulling yourself up from your bootstraps mm -hmm. kind of thinking. So, um, and I think that when we look at what happens in, in US schools, we see that that yes, in some cases, schooling and, and the K-12 um, arena does allow students a lot of opportunities to succeed that they might not have otherwise had or to help them move um, across social classes, for instance. But that's actually pretty few and far between. Mm -hmm. And our schools often, often do um, sort of create um, 
generations of students that look a lot like their parents. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there really are inequalities in the ways in which um, schools provide access for various groups of students. Um, that's not to say that there's not room for transformation, but this is a, a, something that we get kind of trapped in, that mm -hmm. we're, we're both, um, schools are reflecting both our, our, our ambitions, but also reproducing mm -hmm. and, and replicating our problems. Hmm. Yeah, and and you know it's interesting when you think about some of the things parents uh, might wish for their families, for their kids. I'd like to have a nice neighborhood school. Mm -hmm. I'm going to buy this house because my kids can go to that school. Um, uh, and some people, of course, don't have the the mobility or the ability mm -hmm. to, to move to whatever neighborhood they think would have the best school. But um, there have been many, many initiatives and continue to be initiatives both within communities and maybe state and national initiatives to try to to try to bring some of those different neighborhoods together. Those have had mixed success, would you say? Yeah, I think that they have. And I think that um, you, you've pinpointed some of the ways in which it's, it's difficult for all students to have equal access yeah. to high quality education in U.S. schools. Um, Neighbor, people tend to like their neighborhood schools and they want to be in their neighborhoods, but because on, on a basic level, school, schools are funded through, um, in large part through uh, local tax revenue. And, and so uh, more affluent neighborhoods tend to have schools that, have, that are better resourced, that have um, newer curricular materials, that offer a wider range of courses, um, that have smaller class sizes, that have all kinds of extras that other schools might not. Um, there are some lots of solutions that that people that we've tried. Um, we've tried busing um, with actually with with some success. There's research that suggests that busing and sort of a forced kind of integration of, of students across socioeconomic groups could be successful. But again, it's inconvenient, and people like their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons why that hasn't been so successful. Um, other uh, things that, that people have tried, one common um, effort that, that some larger districts have tried is um, a, a school choice initiative. So if, if you, I'm thinking of one, one larger district that I know about where you can you can come up with a list of five schools in the district that you might like your child to go to. And one of them needs to be your neighborhood school, but then through a series of lotteries and, and wait lists, one of those schools will be selected for your child. Now, there's a lot of positive in that. You have some, some, some ways of choosing what you think is the best school for your child and, and movement um, in terms of if you're in a, in a school with concentrated poverty, um, you might be able to move your child somewhere else where they're, uh, to a school that's more um, diverse, for instance. Some of the problems come in how easily it is to access those, those different kinds of schools. So for instance, in, in the district that I'm, that I'm thinking of, um, you would need to know how to access this form and fill out this form in order to actually um, put your kids in, into this choice system, which is a challenging process, especially for um, parents who might not have their own successful experiences with schooling or haven't had a lot of experiences in, in institutions related to education in general. Um, parents who aren't, who are English language learners would be another group. Um, you also have to have time and resources to visit schools, to even know which schools you'd like your child to go to. 
Um, if you were to actually get into a school that, that was one of your choice schools that's across the district, that might mean driving your child rather than having transportation or having them walk to their neighborhood school. Mm -hmm. So sometimes in those efforts, the, the people who benefit the most are those who are already in a, a pretty good school for their, for their child or who have the resources mm -hmm. to, to move their child across a district. Mm -hmm. Um, we're, we have um, some interesting ideas going in, in Iowa City. One is um, with pairing schools. So um, our, our high schools and middle schools are relatively socioeconomically diverse in this town, but our elementary schools are not, um, in large part because we have their neighborhood schools and they're affiliated with, with certain neighborhoods that are either more affluent or, or less affluent. So, but because of the size of our town and because of where neighborhoods are located, it might be possible to take two elementary schools and pair them and have all of the K through three students in one school, all the four mm. through six in another school, mm. and create a kind of diversity through through that sort of an effort. So I don't know where we are in, in thinking about that at this point, but that's one idea that's been floated in Iowa City schools. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, thank you. That gives us a, a good start. Uh, David, I want to move down to you now. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you indicated when we were talking before the program that the goals of education have shifted from common and public good to more of a private good. Um, tell me what you mean by that. Sure. Um, yeah. I think this whole idea that what schools should be doing, which is kind of the prominent idea we have now, that schools should be there to sort of advance people's economic well-being and to, you know, promote economic development and everything like that, those are really very recent ideas in a lot of ways. I mean, if you would have asked people 200 years ago if they thought schools should get their kids ahead, they would have had no idea in the world what you were talking about. I mean, mm -hmm. schools for a long time, I think, were basically ways for elite people to sort of pass on their privileges. But there was a very small range of people who went to higher education at all. I think over time that sort of morphed into different things. I think what happened then, and this is true around the world, I think, is education became more of a, a sort of way for, for nation building. You know, school, like what Sweden wanted to do is build little Swedish citizens, and what Germany wanted to do is build little German citizens, and what the United States wanted to do is build little United States citizens. Um, and that was a major, it's still a major part of what education does, I think, much of the world. Um, I think later then, there's sort of a second movement then, which was more toward education for, you know, for building a workforce. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't so much aimed at individuals, I think, but more at how do you build a society that's productive and prosperous, and what role does education have to do with all that? I think what's happened more recently, and I guess this is what I find kind of, you know, troubling in a lot of ways, that Amanda talked about this quite a bit, is school is more and more seen as just sort of an investment the parents make in their kids to sort of advance their economic, and we've seen this in the news over the last few days, you know, a lot of things happening there. Um, that sort of the purpose of education has shifted from being something that really is sort of for the benefit of the society and increasingly more toward the benefit of individuals. Um, so you see things like, you know, kids, you know, students increasingly defining themselves and being defined as customers, okay, which I think is a really odd way to think about people that should be learning, you know, the the culture and the society and the, you know, the basic math and science and everything else. Um, so those things, it seems to me that, you know, the purpose of education has changed over time and it kind of, there's pendulums that go back and forth, you know, over mm -hmm. time. But it seems to me we've swung awfully far in one direction right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I, guess, I guess too, you know, you know, talking about education and, you know, economic development, things like that, and I'm, I'm a promoter of that. I think, you know, I think it's a good thing for education to contribute to economic development and it, and it does. You, know, you look at evidence all over the world. And there's no doubt that more schooling means a more prosperous economy. I think what troubles me a bit is that you have to talk about community development at the same time you talk about economic development. You know, how do you build communities that are sort of, you know, I think it's just as important to invest in the, in the library as it is in 
you know, in, in, you know, anything that educates people, I think, even beyond school bounds is, I think, part of economic development, and that should be, I think, getting more attention. Mm-hmm. Um, do we still trust schools to create these um, experts who can solve our problems? I mean, do we, do we have faith that coming out of our schools are the people who can, can address current and future I, needs? No, that's, that's a good question. I think it's a really troubling question right now, too. I mean, I saw a report that came out just today from the Pew Charitable Trust, I think, did a survey that showed that, um, I won't say which political party, one of the two political parties, the majority of people in that party actually report that they don't trust higher education to do the right things. And that, to me, is really, really discouraging. Um, when you see the more Americans believe in astrology than believe in global warming. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and I think it's a mistake to trust experts sort of, you know, unreflectively and, you know, unproblematically, and you should challenge experts, you should, but at the other time, at the same time, they are experts, and there are people, you know, science does matter, you know, evidence does matter, and I think the extent to which we've sort of gotten away with that, you know, or gotten away from that, you know, the idea that, you know, there is something to be learned from people who have got advanced training, advanced knowledge, I mean, it should be taken with some, you know, those people have gotten us in trouble in the past too, but... Mm-hmm. But I think sort of this, this willingness that we're seeing more and more to distrust science, to distrust evidence, and dis- distrust education, mm-hmm. I think is really something that, you know, should be concerned with. And not only higher ed, but I think, you know, K-12 schooling. You know, K-12 schooling comes in for a lot of criticism. Mm-hmm. I think by any measure, it's, I think the quality of teaching now is better than it's ever been. I, mean, I don't think it's even close. I mean, you know, people, you know, my kids had a much better educational experience than I did in the same age. So, yeah, I think, I think we need to sort of support whatever it takes to get people to believe in science, believe in education, believe in knowledge, those mm-hmm. sorts of things again. Yeah, and we're, we're using um, schools and education as sort of very broad terms, but there are obviously different kinds of schools. There, there is a lot of talk these days about um, the emphasis I think we need to make on STEM at various points along the way, mm-hmm. and, and then there is, is also um, considerable talk, which again to me seems reasonable about um, recognizing the value of community college and and helping to educate people for some of those um, uh, lines of work that are perhaps considered trades rather than, you know, a different kind of profession. Um, Do you see this as as a good uh, movement? Either. uh, Yeah. do I, th- I mean, yeah, the concentrating on not only, say, a four-year college degree or a PhD oh, or something oh, uh, that yeah. has that sort of framework, but rather um, the, the more directed um, trade no, I, I, those things. Yeah, when I, when I say I think, you know, more education is good for everybody, mm-hmm. I'm by, no, by no means talking about, you know, traditional four-year colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of ways to get the sort of education people need. Not everybody should go to a four-year school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, you know, community colleges, trade schools, apprenticeships, I think those are all completely valid and, mm-hmm. val- you know, valuable ways for people to learn things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, we talked about, you know, I think different public institutions that have a, an educational role should be valued more. I mentioned libraries, but all sorts of different, you know, yeah. civic organizations and community groups and things like that. You know, adult education, I think, is really undervalued yeah. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what are some of the 
biggest problems with um, educational landscape in the states these days. Uh, you know, we hear a lot of talk about what's happening with Secretary of Education, for example, at the federal level, but we know that there there's are community efforts, there are state efforts, there are um, there's a core curriculum. You know, there are a number of things that are happening throughout the society that are, uh, there are attempts being made to, to address schooling in America. And, and what do you think are some of the more positive ones and what concerns you? You know, I, I have a, a thought, and this is really at the, at the higher ed level, and it, it relates a little bit to what David was talking about. I think on the one hand, we are making some real efforts to think more about what our students need from education. So for instance, I, I see this as an associate dean um, for graduate studies and graduate programs that rather than assuming that all of our students are here um, to become uh, to become professors, all of our, our doctoral students, for instance, are here to become professors, we're thinking more broadly about what a PhD is and what it could do for students and what are various kinds of employment um, students can seek with a PhD, what, what, where, can, where can they work beyond just at a university? Um, at the same time, I, I often, I, I feel concerned in some ways that, that we've moved away from an emphasis on education for education's sake yeah. and sort of the intrinsic value of um, coming to a university to explore lots of different perspectives on issues that matter, to learn from different kinds of people, to have rich dialogue um, with faculty and with other students. Um, and so, so I, I think that there's a tension for me in I want to serve our students in the best way that I can in terms of preparing them for careers that that will be fulfilling for them and that are re realistic in terms of employment. At the same time, I want to protect the idea that there's value in higher education in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and then there's the cost of education, particularly higher higher ed, that is obviously of, of um, importance in public dialogue these days. Everyone's concerned about it. People at the university are concerned about what it costs. And, you know, President Harold has has reflected on the uh, multi-decade disinvestment by the state of Iowa, for example, in uh, its universities. Um, it worries me as a, as a member of the public. Um, I don't know if there are good ideas out there that, that either of you could speak to uh, about how we can help students manage the cost of college education. You, I, don't, I don't know if I have a direct answer. I'm going to answer that by saying something different mm -hmm. to our legacy. Mm -hmm. Is, you know, you've heard, both these people talk quite a lot about different ways that education sort of increases the amount of inequality over time. And it does yeah. that. I mean, there are ways that schools are put together that, you know, sort of make it advantage some groups more than other groups. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I think it's also true that, you know, education is probably the most equal social institution you can find. I mean, they're much more equal than, than family life mm -hmm. is or than economic life is or mm -hmm. political life. Um, and I think it's sort of worth asking the question about what would it be like if we didn't have schools. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd probably be a whole lot more unequal than we are now. I mm -hmm. think if anything, the, the net benefit of education on sort of making people's lives more equal is probably very, very positive. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that these things don't, these other things don't happen. I mean, mm -hmm. more, you know, more advantaged parents can do things that less advantaged parents can't do. Mm -hmm. But again, if you sort of think of the, you know, the counterfactual there, you know, what if mm -hmm. schools didn't exist? I think, I think yeah. we'd be a much poorer country than we are. 
Well, and also I think, you know, if we think back to the post-World War II period and the GI Bill, all the, Absolutely. All the yeah, yeah. Uh, young men are able to go to college then, and some women too. Uh, I am, you know, it, it changed the last 50 years of the 20th century, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, as, as you think about addressing the students that are here today, um, what, what are your... Uh, as, a, as a professor, as a teacher, as an associate dean, do you talk about how education uh, can and does provide um, social mobility, opportunities for social transformation in multiple directions? It's, it, obviously, mm-hmm. social transformation can go and uh, doesn't take a straight route all the time. But but is this one of the things that you talk about within the College of Education with to your young um, students? Absolutely. And in fact, um, Mimi Young, who's going to be part of our another conversation, um, has brought some of her students here from a course that we teach called Schooling in the U.S. And that's one thing that, that we talk about. That's a class in, in teaching and learning that's a required course for our students. So we, we certainly broach those issues in that class. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another thing that's important for our students out here to know about um, is, is in thinking about being a part of a, a public institution and a state institution um, and a flagship state institution like yeah. we are, um, it, it's really important to think about how the university is serving the state of Iowa mm-hmm. um, in terms of research that matters to our communities as well as research that matters uh, more broadly in, in our research communities nationally, internationally. I think we have an obligation um, to do research that matters and that can that actually um, that we're in conversation with community members around the state about the work that we do and we're listening to people across the state about what they need and what problems are facing mm-hmm. Iowans. So I think that is that's one of our obligations. And I think um, when we talk about state funding, I th- sometimes think that that one way that we can work on, um, helping people understand the value of education is to show people across the state how the work that we do and the research that we do that sometimes seems to be pie in the sky or esoteric or what have you um, actually does matter in material ways in the everyday lives mm-hmm. of people in the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to say something, David? No. no. Yeah. Um, Regarding the urban-rural school situation, the contrast perhaps in Iowa, um, are some of the smaller communities, and I know when I was growing up, there there was a consolidated school district somewhere Mm -hmm. where they had previously had a number of little towns, all had their own very small school, and then they joined together for a consolidated larger school. And um, is this happening in some of the parts of the state where population is really clearly diminishing, or what, what are we seeing in the rural areas? No, I, I think that's definitely an issue, and, and I think it's, you know, economically you understand why it's happening. It's mm-hmm. very difficult to sort of maintain two small schools in a, you know, a very sparsely populated area. But, I mean, you know this too. If you go through these small towns, the mm-hmm. center of social life in those communities mm-hmm. is the school. Um, and people who don't have kids in their own school, in their school mm-hmm. still go to the football games. Mm-hmm. I mean, they still mm-hmm. go to the events. I mean, mm-hmm. it's still sort of how the life in that community is organized. Right. 
Um, and you, you lose a lot. I mean, I mean school, you, you understand the economic argument for school consolidation, but there's definitely a social cost to that, a mm-hmm. community cost, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, and I should also ask something about the people who do homeschooling these days. Is that a growing proportion of parents who school their own kids? Or I, I don't really know how many people here in Iowa, for example, do that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's substantial in Iowa. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've had their own, you know, sort of state-level organization for years. Uh, I think the mistake is sort of thinking about homeschooling as sort of this homogenous group mm-hmm. of people. It's really a number of groups of people. I mean, you've got, you know, sort of, you know, very religious-oriented people who believe in it. You've got a lot of, I don't know how I want to characterize them, but sort of 60s hippies oh, types yeah, who yeah. are still sort of, you know, into that. Um, there's a fairly substantial group of what you might characterize as survivalist people in Iowa who have just chosen to bring their kids out of the public school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, th- I think there's a, and for most, as I understand, most homeschooling too, the kids still have some relationship with public school. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like they're entirely se- mm-hmm. separated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it seems to be anything that sort of gets in the way of thinking of the school as public yeah. is, is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, I understand parents' right to do that and parents' choice to do that. But I think anything that breaks down that sort of sense of, you know, commonality, mm-hmm. you know, is, is, you know, there are very serious costs to that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Anything further you'd like to say, Amanda, on that? I, I think David's covered that pretty well. I, I mean, I, I think that um, I, I agree that an important thing to think about with, with homeschooling is that this is a, a diverse group of, of families who choose this and that students have a lot of opportunities to be involved in their communities and even in their schools um, in other ways through athletics and extracurricular activities. Um, and that, that I, I think that this is a group that's more organized than may have been in the past. Yeah, mm. interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. But um, thank you both for starting us off on this discussion. David Bills and Amanda Tyne, thank you. And we'll go to our next segment in just a moment. But for now, would you please uh, thank our guests? Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Our topic tonight is why school, education, and social transformation. And in this segment, our guests will look at schools in the US a little more closely and discuss whether and how they serve as agents of change within society. Uh, Just next to me is Sarah Brook, assistant professor in the UI Department of Sociology. Thanks for being here, Sarah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Next to her is David Castles Johnson, Associate Professor in the UI College of Education. Thanks, David. Thank you. Mm-hmm. At the far end, we have Mimi Young, Assistant Professor in the UI College of Education. Thank you, Mimi, for being here. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, let me first turn to you. Um, what do you see happening in American schools? You've heard the first segment here, and we kind of had an overview of education and philosophies behind education. But what do you see happening in American schools today? Yeah, thanks. I think that's a great question. Um, I think for me, uh, as a sociologist, one of the things I think a lot about is how schools are places of contention. Um, So a lot of times we like to think that things will get better over time, that each generation there'll be less inequality or less inequity, um, and that schools are one of the places where we'll see that happen, Um, but that... uh, one of the, the more critical uh, ways to think about the role of schools and what's happening in schools, especially in the U.S. context, is 
you know, that actually change won't occur unless you make it happen, you know, that it is a site of contention, that it is a site of struggle, um, and that there are different interests competing for what we do in schools in the U.S. Um, and a couple of examples of that would be um, in terms of equity, especially, especially around race. Um, you know, like we like to have integrated, diverse schools, um, but how we go about doing that um, and what happens when we do that in terms of how do the students actually experience those diverse or integrated schools and whether or not that's a positive experience for them um, is something that we should talk a lot more about. And I think that's kind of where the crux of a lot of the conversations are. Um, and I think a second thing about that is um, how students experience schools in terms of the purpose or the mission of creating citizens in schools. Mm -hmm. um, so we heard in the first segment about, yes, schools create workers. Um, they also create citizens. That was one of the reasons we started public schools in the U.S. Um, but how they go about doing that and what are the sites of contention around that, I think, is one of the, the big issues on the table. So because of it, it is a site of disagreement, much of what we've done in civic education is really pull back what we teach kids in terms of their formal curriculum. So we teach them the structure of government. We teach them how to be a citizen in terms of what are the knowledge and skills you need to have to be a citizen. Um, but we pay a lot less attention to things that would actually educate youth um, in terms of how to think about social issues and how to critically evaluate evidence and arguments, um, which is really another part of being a, a citizen in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, could I just um, go back to one of the first remarks you made and, and just ask you whether it is a universal truth that we in our schools are looking for diversity? Are there not places in the country where people would be quite happy not to have any diversity? I think that's obviously an open question. I think in, in a lot of surveys that are done uh, among the U.S. public, people ask whether or not people want their children to go to diverse or integrated schools, whether that be racial diversity, socioeconomic mm -hmm. diversity, or just any kind of social demographic or social identity diversity. Um, and I think the vast majority of people would say yes to that question, whether okay. there's some social desirability bias in those mm -hmm. responses, sure. Um, but I think a lot of businesses, a lot of uh, folks from a more utilitarian perspective would mm -hmm. say, oh, diverse teams make better decisions, those kind of yeah. uh, utilitarian reasons. But I think also from a more value-based perspective, um, a lot of folks would say, I think I want my kids to be exposed to difference. Mm -hmm. What that kind of difference is, you know, clearly could yeah. be different in different contexts. But I think that understanding that we're not all the same mm -hmm. and that that's actually something that is a benefit. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in some communication we had before the program, you said that uh, a lot of attention is on formal curriculum and citizenship creation, mm -hmm. but the way people learn from their broader circumstances and their uh, friend networks and so on really affect the way they behave in school, the way they're treated in school. Yeah, so one of the things that I look a lot at is how students experience schools more broadly, not just what the curriculum uh, or teaching is in terms of the former, for, formal curriculum. Um, and a lot of what uh, I and other people focus on is how do young people experience different forms of public authority? So whether that be a teacher or a principal or a police officer, um, and how that experience with that public authority affects how you think of yourself, not just as an individual, but as a civic or as a citizen uh, in mm -hmm. our uh, 
civic being or as a citizen, um, I think is important because it teaches you lessons. Uh, it teaches you lessons about how do people in authority think about people like you, um, how do people treat people like you, and then based on that treatment and how you perceive what's going on, um, do you think that authority is legitimate? Do you trust your teachers? Do you trust the government? Do you trust uh, that folks in positions of authority would do things right by you or people in your group? And I think that that's a really important thing that a lot of people are looking at, and there's some really sort of disturbing um, results from the research in this area, which really suggests that, you know, m much uh, like you might expect, that people with more socially marginalized identities are treated in specific ways across our public institutions, not just in schools, mm -hmm. in a way that further marginalizes them and makes them less likely to participate in their communities and in our political system. Um, and that has pretty large ramifications mm -hmm. uh, in terms of being a democratic society. Mm -hmm. That kind of leads very naturally into some of the conversation we might have with you, David. Uh, your work is as an educational linguistics. Uh, you research educational linguistics and teach in this I area? I work in language education. Uh -huh. that's, that's my background uh -huh. is in uh -huh. educational linguistics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell us what educational linguistics means. Um, it's sort of leveraging uh, the tools from linguistics to focus on educational problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Educational language policies are, are one of the ways in which there's, there may be attempts to minimize differences between students or, or to uh, accept the variety of language backgrounds that students... Yeah, historically that really hasn't been the case. I hate to echo what Sarah mm. said and what Amanda said and David mm -hmm. said, but in, in, at the risk of turning this forum into a real bummer, but um, <laughs> the, the history of educational language policy has been one of linguistic marginalization subjugation, um, intentional era eradication of languages mm -hmm. um, in, in order to maximize the differences. So you said minimize the difference. Um, that's, that's sort of the history of language policy throughout the world, actually, is they are used to uh, secure privileges for the ruling class. Um, uh, and so that's, that's, ba so that's, that's sort of the history of language policy in this country and everywhere in the world. Um, but there have been exceptions to that for sure. Uh, so in th thinking about the U.S. context, the, Lau the 1974 Lau v. Nichols Supreme, uh, su unanimous Supreme Court decision, dis they dis in that decision they decided that the same instruction for what we call English language learners or kids who don't speak English as their native language, mm -hmm. the same instruction for them as their native English-speaking counterparts mm -hmm. is unequal instruction, exact opposite way that it works in France, actually. Mm. In order to be equal, everyone is, is educated in French. Um, and, and in fact, to not provide accommodations, and they didn't specify what kind of accommodations you can provide, to not, but to not provide any kind of accommodations violates the student's civil rights. So they relied on the Civil Rights Act for that decision. So that's a, that's a landmark decision in, in, the, in educational policy in the US. Most school districts have to have what they call a LAO plan. So you have to have a plan in place for how you're going to accommodate these students. Mm -hmm. um, the Bilingual Education Act of 1968, uh, which, which ushered in the ability for schools to offer uh, education in two languages, the goal of which is bilingualism, biliteracy, and content knowledge in both languages. The Native American Languages Act of 1990, um, which provided funding for the educa education in indigenous languages in the US. Most people would say, a lot of people would say, too little, too late, as far as, because the, the state did a pretty good job at eradicating most indigenous languages along the way. So, but there are these opportunities that educators have, these federal policies. I think a lot of the work happens on the local level, though. Mm -hmm. um, so 
For example, in the state of Iowa, we've experienced uh, about a 300% increase over the past 20 years in the number of English language learners in schools. There's a lot of work to be done. At the same time, the number of native English speakers has shrunk. Hmm. So, you know, Iowa is not really a state where people move to. It seems to be a state that people leave a lot of times. But um, so there's, we're experiencing a demographic phenomenon in which there's a rapidly changing linguistic ecology and educators are you know, tackling these issues, I think, in ethical, uh, pedagogically uh, astute, responsible ways. So there's a lot of good work, I think, that happens on the local level. So I, I mm -hmm. try to put a positive spin on that. So, mm -hmm. so there, there's social transformation. Bilingual education is alive and well in the state of Iowa. So there are mm -hmm. schools around Iowa in which kids are educated in, in more than one language. And uh, so I, I'm encouraged by the, the talent um, and the capacity in, in, in Iowa schools. It's just we need to realize uh, the full potential that we have with this changing linguistic ecology and diversity in, in Iowa, mm -hmm. and everywhere in the United States, for that matter, mm -hmm. in the world. <laughs> Could I ask you, and I may also ask uh, Mimi this question. Uh, so if you look at um, a student, uh, minority student here in Iowa, our black population is very small considering the population of the state. Um, if, you, if you have um, black students in the classroom who have, uh, who carry with them a different kind of um, uh, social interaction, the kind, the, the way they might talk, the way they're most comfortable talking or, or behaving, uh, it's very natural, feels good to them, it's culturally where they come from, but it doesn't sort of fit with the sort of standard uh, kid in a, in a white Iowa classroom. Uh, are those students automatically likely to suffer because of this difference in the way they present themselves linguistically? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not just different languages, it's definitely different dialects mm -hmm. of English. Um, as a kid who moved to Iowa, I, so I moved to Iowa when I was a kid, I had to uh, move from the south, from the Appalachian Mountains, and I had that dialect. Mm -hmm. And I remember the, the, the sort of, the, uh, how my interactions with teachers at that time, you know, and so yeah. and the expectations that they have. I mean, language ideologies are deeply entrenched. The way that we judge other people based on the way that they speak is, is deeply entrenched. It's a part of our... Uh, human makeup, I mean, we do, people, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, there's a history of marginalizing not just minoritized languages, but uh, minoritized mm -hmm. dialects. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and African-American language is definitely one of them, one of the ones that's gotten the most uh, attention in US educational policy. It's got a lot of attention from, from linguists. But there's a lot of work that goes on as well to sort of overcome those obstacles uh, and try to allow, try to encourage those students to achieve equal educational opportunity. We're all socialized into language in different kinds of ways. So it's not just, um, you know, Appalachian English is another good example in which kids are socialized into language in the kinds in, in kinds of ways that might not reflect what happens in school. So there's a sort of language. There are these sociolinguistic norms of interaction that are privileged in schools, which are based on primarily white middle class sociolinguistic norms. So if you didn't grow up around being socialized into those norms, mm -hmm. the way that teachers ask questions, the way that they read books to the kids and hold up the book like this, mm -hmm. the way that they ask questions to which they already know the answer, display questions, not, not a very common speech act in every community in the world. So the ways, so, but, but kids who grow up in, 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 in homes that sort of reflect those sociolinguistic norms are obviously advantaged when they go to those mm -hmm. schools, and kids who don't are disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And so 
I think that it's important to establish um, critical, you, you mentioned critical language awareness among the teachers um, for these, these types of differences to, to, uh, and to encourage the, the linguistic and diver cultural diversity that kids bring to the class. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Mimi, um, you're an assistant professor of social studies education, if I understand correctly, and I think much of your work fo focuses on achievement and educational outcomes um, for marginalized and minority populations and also special focus on black women and girls. Um, can you reflect on what you've heard so far here and then share your own thoughts? Sure. Just kind of segueing a little bit, speaking of linguistics, there's a documentary called uh, Talking Black in America, and it's actually a documentary um, from a team of ling linguists um, and educational ling linguists, if I'm saying that correctly, <laughs> uh, in which uh, a lot of the context relates to education. And when we talk about this whole notion of like what is standard English, yeah. who speaks standard English, and what an English is standard, the way we speak we, I say, would say y'all, I'm from Texas, <laughs> what y'all speak here in the Midwest is very different from how guys. people speak, you guys, I've never heard that, you guys <laughs> uh, speak, uh, is compared to how we speak in Texas and as well as adding those different like dialectical differences. So for instance, in a school setting, you may have a student who says, and I talk to my students about this, uh, a black student, a black child, a black girl says, miss, can I ask you a question, right? And the, the teacher, I think probably as part of some kind of compulsion or probably what they've been taught in their teacher ed program, honestly. They correct the students and say, you know, can I, you mean you want to ask me a question? And what that does to a child who in their mind already has an oppositional view of their teacher and has a great deal of respect for people who speak like them. Their pastor says ax, their coach says ax, their grandmama says ax, everybody says ax. The only person who doesn't say ax is this white female person standing in, in front of them. And so I think it's important to affirm these different um, languages as well as um, vernaculars and dialects because they're part of who we are as people and no one is absent from an accent or dialect. We all have accents and dialects okay. and that speaks more to the system of like hegemonic oppression that we see in a school system to say that there is a standard means that there is things that are not standard. Right. Um, so just speaking to that point, as far as do you, did you have a question embedded in the second part of what you were asking? Oh, I don't remember, but what you've just said is, is terrific. So, so um, what does social transformation in the context of education mean to you? It's a great question. So one, I think it's something we need to talk about because it's not a new notion, right? It's just been packed and unpacked and packaged again. We call it social transformation. Previously, we've called it social change. That's how I'm more familiar with this term as a, a concept of social change. Um, previously, and we're kind of vacillating back and forth about the notion of social justice. And then previous to that, it was social action. So we've seen a history, and to me, it patterns uh, this terminology patterns whatever uh, new reform is in, in place, my opinion. Um, but I say that to say, what do we mean by when we say social change? You know, um, when this was first presented to me, some it was presented as um, social change in our education system. And I don't know that you can talk about change in a system in a complementary type of way. You know, change is the antecedent of a system not the other way around. 
when we say change, are, is that a proxy for control? Is that a proxy for confusion? And what do we mean by change? Do we talk about change so that we don't have to enact it? Um, so I'm obviously a little bit more critical of this <laughs> notion of social change, social transformation, because I've yet to see it as far as the demographics of students that I uh, research, I've yet to see it serve to their benefit. Um, previously, we talked about, for instance, um, uh, like in a K through 12 setting as compared to higher ed, for, for example, um, I'll go into my background is in multicultural and urban education. So I can go into a very large school district. All of the property taxes pull into the school district and they're supposed to be equitably, another word that's been repackaged, equity, diversity, equality, and the like, but we, they're supposed to be equitably distributed. But when we look in these schools, I'll go into one school in the very same district, you have an ID that swipes you to get into everything. You wave your hand, water comes, toilet paper, paper towels, and the like. But then I'll go literally two miles away in the same school district, and you have students who have to use the toilet paper as their hall pass to go to the bathroom. They don't even keep the toilet paper in the bathroom. Everything is broke. The books are recycled, and the demographics of these schools look very similar to Brown versus prior, you know, pre-Brown versus uh, Board of Education. And so, um, when we talk about social change, I don't see that as something that benefits all students. And in fact, to the group that it benefits, it serves as the same detriment to other minoritized and marginalized populations. When we look at higher ed, an example that was brought up earlier was like the GI Bill. That is something that wasn't afforded for all people, right. especially people of color. And this is not something I think some of y'all maybe, you know, we have a younger crowd in, in, in the audience. But when we think about the precedence of this, this is not something that was 50 or 100 years ago. My own dad served in the military for 30 years and he retired and he did not have a GI Bill. GI Bills oftentimes are passed down to their children. So I went to school with people that I had to pay for my education and my white counterparts had this GI Bill, which is substantial, to help pay for theirs. And our parents served side by side fighting for this country. So when we talk about educational change, mm -hmm. I've yet to see it realized in a broader context. Are there policy initiatives that you, that are, are there things that you, you can point to, that you have your hands around and say, this is what we need to do? Um, what, what, are, there, are there a couple of things that you can say would make a big change right away? No. Mm -hmm. So it's all about the larger culture? It's about the way we treat each other um, in, in the full community? I think there are you know, this is again a system, an education system. Systems are not designed to necessarily benefit people, it's designed to benefit the system. And so there are so many components to this that have to be interrogated, disrupted, dismantled. And I think the way that we, it's, I don't consider myself as part of the we, but the way in which, you know, um, we've gone about this notion of social changes, we want to keep the system the same while still having the goal of serving or changing or enacting or, you know, transforming. And that's not what transformation is. Norms must change. The system must change. People must change. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to turn to you guys and ask for some response to these very um, challenging thoughts. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I would say that um, I completely agree that uh, things are systemic, that inequities are, or inequalities are systemic, not just in educational systems. Um, I think that one of the biggest challenges to creating change, uh, whether it's social or otherwise, is um, that there's a mismatch between what we say we want uh, in terms of we want everybody to have an equal chance, we believe in the American dream, we want to reduce inequities, and what it would actually take to see those through. Um, because I think a lot of people want to stay in their comfort zone. Yeah. So they want to have that neighborhood school. They want to be able to, if they're in a privileged group, they want to be able to go and say, I can buy into a neighborhood where my kid will go to the good school. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, that's, both of those things are not compatible with each other. Um, and that because a lot of times folks that on the one side will say, I value diversity and I want everybody to have an equal chance, uh, but then we'll turn around and buy a house in a good neighborhood so their kid goes to this good school mm -hmm. and then you know lobby the school district or other officials to say, these are the advantages that I want for my child. Those aren't compatible, and that's a mismatch that I think a lot of people as individuals uh, don't really grapple with, uh, and that's one of the things that's reflected in our policies and practices now mm -hmm. um, of that sort of ambivalence of whether or not we'll actually make ourselves accountable to live by the principles that we espouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree with both of you that schools are, you know, a part of a larger network of systems which serve to basically reinforce social inequities. Education can't, uh, you know, escape this larger network of systems. Maybe we should. Maybe we shouldn't expect it to either. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, maybe. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of a lot to ask for schooling to, to, sol to, to solve these uh, societal mm -hmm. problems, to, to engage in social transformation. I'm interested in Mimi's interrogation of that term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I, would, I would say, though, that the, 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 at the end of the day, when I, you know, I want to feel good about the profession, because this is what we do for a living, I do think about the educators that I work with who are, who are committed to um, whatever their vision of social justice is. Um, for the kids that they work with. And so, mm -hmm. um, so I do think there are talented, uh, committed um, individuals out there um, uh, working to provide equal educa ed educational opportunity for the kids' lives. But, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tough job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Mimi, we had a chance to talk before we started this segment. And you have some thoughts on homeschooling. Um, I do. Uh, I think that parents, we have to recognize that parents are a child's first educator and the value in that. And I think that there's something to say, especially if you would, you know, kind of poll the homeschooling community, if parents felt like they were the first educator, that they were a valued member of their child's education team and that they were a stakeholder, that perhaps they wouldn't be pulling their kids from our systems to begin with. Um, I also think that um, parents um, are very resourceful in finding ways to create an education for their child that reflects their own values and morals. And then also within the body of my work, one of the largest growing um, groups of homeschooling the home, within the homeschooling community are uh, black parents. Um, and that's due to, you know, things that, again, serve 
as counters to this notion of social change, like the criminalization of black children in schools and um, the, the opportunities or the lack thereof, and just the social conditions, um, the trauma that um, a lot of black students, particularly black girls, face uh, when they go to school. Um, and this is not just K through 12, it's higher ed. And we have a lot of you know, testament, testimonies to that end. So um, I think that um, I just wanted to make sure as educators, we affirm other mediums or outlets for um, schooling. Because remember, when we talk about schooling and education, those t terms are oftentimes used synonymously, and they're not, right? Schooling is the system by which we educate, and education is what we, what we receive. So um, I've seen a lot of students who are very happy, well-adjusted, successful, professional, homeschooled mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, wow, this has flown by, and I want to say thank you so much to Sarah Brooke and David uh, Johnson and Mimi Young for being with us in this segment. Um, please stay with us for the next panel where we'll take a cross-cultural look at the role of schools in both enforcing cultural and social norms and transforming them. Uh, World Canvas programming is available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. Um, I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for joining us for this segment. Hello, I'm Joan Kerr. Welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Glad to have you with us. This is part three of our program, Why School? Education and Social Transformation. In this segment, we're going to expand our geographical scope and look at these issues cross-culturally. Uh, joining us for this segment are Angela James, Senior Lecturer in the School of Education at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. So nice to have you here, Angela. Thank you. And I'm excited extremely excited and happy to be here, and I'm honored. Oh, thank you. Much gratitude. Oh, thank you, and ours to you. Um, and next to her is Greg Hammett, professor in the UI College of Education. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me come, Jane. Pleasure. Jane. <laughs> and Unjung, no. yeah, no problem. <laughs> and also we'd like to welcome Unjung Kim, a graduate student in the UI College of Education. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, Angela, pleasure to have you here all the way from South Africa. Long flight, I know. And, uh, yes. um, and may I tell you, I just arrived after 12 today. <laughs> well, we're just lucky you made it in. Um, and uh, speaking about South Africa, we know that in these past three decades, four decades, there's been tremendous change, social change, political change. Um, I'm sure the same is true of the educational system in those years. Uh, could you give us an idea of what the South African schools were like? prior to the 90s, and um, what kinds of transformations have you seen in the way schools operate, the way people um, interact with one another? Okay, thank you. Um, I think when you speak about transformation, one of the things that we really have to ask is, well, who decides what their transformation is going to be and why even transformation? Um, just to, to go back to, to the question that you asked about schools in South Africa pre um, post-apartheid. Um, when, when I think about my own schooling, we, we all had different, um, different groupings and we all lived in different particular areas based on your, your racial divisions or your racial classification. And quite clearly, the policies were, were um, really aligned to the different groups that you, you were in. And yeah, 
policies where, where schooling was for laborers and the quality of the schools, I would say in, in many instances, were very diverse. Um, with highly resourced schools and extremely poorly resourced schools. And, and I must say, presently, I could tell you that there are still very poorly resourced schools presently in South Africa. I mean, when a child falls in a pit latrine um, because of in, in, um, inadequate sanitation at a school, that, that is really um, unacceptable, not in this day and age, especially, especially since we are over 20 years in, in democracy. So when, when I think about the inequalities that are present across the schooling sector, yes, there have been developments with regard to the curriculum and the fact that across all the schools, if you think of government schools, there's one, there's one curriculum which is now in place. And um, I think that's, that is a good development in, in, at this point in time. And the fact that there are also rec there's recognition with regard to indigenous knowledge systems, where in the past that was not even thought about. Um, it was not even given any relevance whatsoever. So those, those types of aspects and looking at the... Um, Looking at gender, taking the gender aspects into account, taking, for example, assessment policies and the whole aspect with regard to the types of knowledges that we need to be focusing on and the relevance of that knowledge for the various groups of children that we have in our schools. Um, we, we really need to consider that we still do have schools where there's so much violence that is happening. And, and when you start asking questions about why is there that type of violence and why are there these poorly resourced schools? I mean, I can take you to a school where there are no windows present in that school. <laughs> windows is a small thing. But are there teachers fully qualified um, being with the children in those classrooms all the time. And, and really what we need to think about is um, what is schooling ultimately? And, and what, what is it that we should be working with within each of our communities in which um, we, we have our schools? And yes, we have private schools and government schools, and our government schools are ranged in quintiles, from quintile one, which is no fee paying, to quintile five, which were the ex-so-called ex-Model C schools or the ex-white um, schools in the past. And, and children are attending these schools all across, across the, the divides. But I think what, what is essentially important for me is do we understand our children? And is it about a child attending school and ticking the box that the child has attended school? Or is it about how we are creating the possibilities and the opportunities and the freedom for the children to be? So I may not just be talking about the South African context, but I am also saying that there are a number of different aspects that need to be taken into account. And I know that um, for some of the schools in South Africa, some of the things I've just spoken about now are in place and are actually happening. But is it for the majority? No, it's not. And isn't that what education should be about, where we consider every single child, no matter who, what, where, that particular child is, and who the parents are, and what particular economic um, setting they actually come from. I think, and even the political, I think 
so often the political and the economic drive education, which is not and should never be the case. It is about communities, understanding what it is, not in terms of their needs, we must move away from that thinking, but in terms of their desires. If we work with desires, then we are actually um, looking at how we're enhancing every single person and really working with the mind of an individual. Who am I? What is it that I'm capable of? And at what point do we, do we actually work with children so that they get to that point where they can understand exactly who they are? No, maybe, maybe not exactly, but they are on the road. It's a journey, but they can understand who they are into becoming the types of people that they would like to become as well. Mm. So... Yes, I've answered your question, but in, in more of a roundabout way and getting us to think more broadly about these particular aspects. And in terms of the, the, the social injustices that are in place in education, they are very apparent across our schools. Hmm. Uh, what kinds of uh, initiatives are there on the, uh, in the national level, perhaps, to address these concerns? Are there some? Yes, there are, as I have spoken, uh, obviously at different levels. So they would be within the government sector looking at the curriculum and the structure of the curriculum across all the schools and the fact that there's now one common curriculum and um, there's an understanding of, well, there is an understanding in terms of policy, but may I, we could question it in terms of implementation and the preparation of teachers and also the access to resources for all, all these initiatives to be implemented in the most effective ways possible. So, so it would be at the curriculum level. It's, it's also within teacher professional development and looking at the um, policies that are present there as well too, where um, across all the universities that are concerned with teacher professional development, there is consensus about what it is that one needs to be looking at. In the past, each person did, not each person, but each institution did as they, they thought would be the, the best possible for the um, student teachers or pre-service teachers, as, as we say it today. Um, so, so even at the teacher professional development, there are definitely policies with regard to that. There's lots of initiatives with regard to STEM education and from the government sector, from NGOs. Um, there are NGOs, for example, like the Eskom Expo for Young Scientists, which really gets so many young people out into different... It's, it's a competitive field, but it's really an unpacking and understanding um, the dimensions with regard to research and the investigations that one has to do. Um, but that's not the only one. There's also developments in robotics that are taking place across the board. There are so many types of Olympiads. So, so there's, there's a complexity and there, there's really, I would say, a commitment from various sectors across the board, whether it is from industry, um, it's from community-type organisations, it's from educational settings, for there to be development across the board um, with regard to education. Um, but I do want to say it also is about the will of the teacher in the classroom as well, because ultimately it's the teacher and the child that have that intense relationship. So in education, it's relationship that matters. What types of relationships are there? Um, within the school setting. I mean, you could even look at, for example, a principal and teachers. What types of relationships are there in those types of settings as well? So any development that takes place 
does take place on different levels, but but it's about the intimate um, aspects and and the the connections that that one has amongst different sets of people that is entirely important mm -hmm. as well. If a child is not comfortable where he or she is or where the child is, then how does one expect that child to to really grow in that type of setting? I don't want to say ed be educated. I do want to say grow because there's a lot in terms of um, how the child sees himself or herself within those particular settings. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is there um, uh, thorough racial integration or do kids go to schools that are near their homes, again, uh, marking okay. uh, economic privilege uh, throughout the schools? Well, we, we do have a policy where um, children in, in districts, obviously you attend the school in your district. And already that, that, that's a marker because yeah. districts are, are so clearly de divided. Um, and we still have, we, in the past, we had areas that were called township areas. And those are the areas where only black people lived. Those areas are still in place today. Um, and they may not be called the township as such, but um, quite clearly it's, it's um, a lot of people who... Economically, they, they are not absolutely privileged. And the schools, I must say, some of the schools in, in those particular areas are really fantastic schools. And, I mean, you can get... Uh, I, I, actually, I actually do this um, activity with the students where we read an article which looks at the A-plus um, performance of learners from a very rural school with really the resources are, are so lacking in that school but the children perform so well. So, so the questions we need to ask are, is it about do resources really make a difference? Um, or, is, or, are the, or is the presence of resources just enablers for the performance to just be a bit better? So, yeah, I, I, there's, I want to raise a lot of questions about that. But, but certainly... Um, there are issues um, with regard to the different schools, the different settings, um, the access to resources, the access, for example, to computers. Our first year, a lot of our first year students come in and they've never laid their hands on a computer. And so we have to then have um, classes for these particular computer literacy classes for these particular students. And, and I think that's the important thing is that we need to understand who are our students and, and what is it that we could be working with in order for us to enhance them to levels where they can really just fly. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, I, I'd like to move next to you, Greg. Um, you've been here at our university for quite a long time and you've been deeply involved in global education and you've obviously been educating future teachers through the College of Education for a very long time. Um, you're also the Associate Director for the UI Center for Human Rights and have spent no small amount of energy studying education outside the U.S. What are some of the observable differences in education in democratic societies as opposed to authoritarian societies? Well, <clears throat> the basic difference is that in a democratic society, you have, at least idealistically, you have a critical eye toward all values, mores, beliefs. 
with the notion of some sort of reconstruction of society, reconceptualization of it in a progressive sort of way. You can't do that in an author authoritarian society because it would collapse. It can't examine itself. It would be, it would be, uh, uh, it would implode basically. And as a result, an authoritarian society has a very uh, set ideological framework that cannot be aired from. And, and we, we do too in, in a democratic society uh, by, by the nature of the beast. But the ideal is for it not to be ideologically set, but to be intellectually, um, I think the words that have been used are interrogated, disrupted, deconstructed, and so on and so forth. That in essence should be the difference between an authoritarian and a democratic system of education. Mm -hmm. um, so you have done a lot of work and spent a lot of time in post-authoritarian societies and, and looked at education there. Um, what can you tell us? Well, it was very absolutely fascinating to listen to my colleagues in the first two panels because, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an American educator, as are they. Uh, but I kept imagining to myself, what if you, uh, we have a lot of problems to deal with, but what if you woke up one morning and the democracy that we have, mm -hmm. however you want to define it or, or uh, evaluate it, uh, is no longer here and we're a theocracy. What do you do now? Okay. And so in, in all the seven or eight countries that I've worked with, they literally went to bed one night totalitarian, woke up the next morning democratic. Mm-hmm which is a mind-boggling shift in social psychology. It's a mind-boggling shift in shifting from learned helplessness to I'm on my own. Mm. And, and so what I've learned is that if you're going to do that, if you're going to overthrow the previous paradigm and shift to another one, in this case to democracy, uh, if there is no preparation, which is usually not the case, or is usually the case when there's no preparation. You have to start with the youth of the country because the adults are pretty much, the boat has sailed, the ship has sailed. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and so many times in these countries, I've seen that uh, all the resources go to the top and not to the educational system in this transformation from an authoritarian to a democratic society. The mere process is simple as something like uh, something we do in our classrooms very commonly would be have a discussion. Mm. Uh, when we first began working with the Polish Ministry of Education in 1991, uh, my colleagues went back and they were university professors. They were developing a teacher education program, the people I worked with at that time. They said, well, that was a great idea, but, uh, but uh, our students got into fistfights. Because prior to the dawn of democracy in Poland, there was the professor and they professed and the student listened and memorized. And that was the way things went. The didactic method was very straightforward. The idea of having one's own opinion and having to warrant that assertion or opinion with facts and data was an unknown concept in education. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was a challenge in that regard to, to help develop mm -hmm. a sense of, well, what, do you, what is it you need? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, there's a philosopher, former, a uh, late philosopher from Columbia University by the name of Jacques Brezon, who said, uh, who wrote an article called Can Democracy Be Exported? Hmm. And the answer to that question, and I agree with him, is no. 
but it can be imported. A country has to be able to look at the rest of the democratic world and say, what parts of this fit our sociocultural existence, our sociopolitical existence, that we can build upon with our youth? Because it, it, spending it all on the adults is not going to work. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I found out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what about the role of human rights in education? Uh, globally mm -hmm. or here in the United States? Well, maybe both. Well, here in the United States, it's virtually nil. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't mean that derogatorily or pejoratively. It, it, if you look at the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you will see a lot of the Bill of Rights in it. So we have not ignored the Universal Declaration of Human Rights so much as teach it by not knowing we're teaching it in many cases. Okay? Not that we teach it well or that we accomplish much. That's up to you know, mm -hmm. the students to decide. Mm. and the parents. But, uh, but globally, in democracies, it has become the foundation of their constitutional structure, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So when I worked in, for instance, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, you have to work with curriculum design and development from what it is that is commonly shared. And the one thing that's commonly shared in all these democracies is their constitution. And so when, you, when, I, when we had to analyze these constitutions to see what exactly is it that these countries are hoping to achieve, you could see the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights written between every line, practically. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the rest of the world that has turned democratic since the fall of communism has probably got more of a human rights educational vein in their system than we do. Mm -hmm. hmm. Um, you shared a, a thought with me, educating for democracy as a habit of mind. What, what does that mean? That, that's, uh, that's, that, that's something that I, uh, I stole from a guy named John Dewey. John Dewey and his work, and as, along with all kinds of people who, who uh, succeeded him, uh, focused on an interesting concept at the turn of the last century that hadn't been really considered or at least hadn't gelled, which was the idea that democracy is not the institutions. Democracy is the way we think, or as mm -hmm. he wrote, how we think. Mm -hmm. Okay, And the idea of having a problem, an issue, a trend, or something that you are dealing with interpersonally and intrapersonally, which means it projects from you to the society in which you live, is something that requires all of the best available evidence to bring to bear in resolution of that problem. So in a multicultural society, it gives you, like ours, or South Africa, mm -hmm. it gives you a remarkable amount of information, of perspectives, and so on, to apply to issues and problems. To separate people from each other in educational systems would be to deny each of those groups the other's input. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and would deny them that habit of mind of let's, let's come to a consensus on the best idea. Mm -hmm. And this is really what democracy is, at least to me, mm -hmm. is the ability for all voices to be able to contribute to the solution and come up with the one that is both in our own self-interests, our enlightened self-interests, as the Tocqueville called mm -hmm. them, and the common good. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty tricky balance in a society mm -hmm. to be able to pull those two things off. Mm -hmm. But that's why sometimes... Uh, democracies don't succeed. And as you can see in Eastern Europe, particularly in Hungary and Poland right now, uh, you could see it in, in Russia, obviously. 
there is a retraction to the authoritarian society. Mm-hmm. Life is a lot easier when someone tells you how to do it mm-hmm. than it is when you have to figure it out yourself with your, with your friends and your colleagues and your right. family. Right. Well, well, thank you so much. Uh, um, now I'd like to go to Anjung. And um, you're from South Korea. You're a teacher in South Korea, and now you're getting your PhD at the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have been social and demographic changes happening in today's South Korea. Um, can you tell us how those changes affect education? Yeah, um, Korean society has been uh, experiencing a lot of change in terms of demogra- uh, demographics uh, because of uh, influx of uh, foreign workers from mostly Southeast Asian countries and China, and also the increase of international marriage uh, that affects actually um, the total of uh, government policy in terms of education. Uh, mm-hmm. The gov- Korean government inish- uh, initially took their per- first step of multicultural education in 2006, and since then, we have been implementing multicultural education in South Korean educational system. So this is very new to us, because we, our society used to be homogeneous society in terms of demographic, uh, the ethnic background, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh, now we have different types of people um, in terms of cultural and also race and ethnicity, of mm-hmm. course. And these all changes into Korean educational system because um, all teachers have never had had never experienced uh, multiculturalism before uh, 2000. But the now we have to implement, implement all multicultural education. That, that gives us challenges and possibilities to embrace um, different types of society. How can we create uh, for our next generation? So the de- demographic change challenges us and also gives a lot of possibility to education or especially educators. Mm-hmm. For me, I never heard the term multicultural education when I was in school, even uh, in college. But uh, so we also had a big long-held notion of single-blooded nationalism. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that all kinds of uh, historical background uh, actually have been challenged by the demographic change uh, recently. So that also gives us, uh, as a teacher, huge challenge, also a lot of possibilities for the next generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, are people from some of these different ethnic backgrounds mm-hmm. becoming citizens of South Korea, or they are just living there as uh, essentially temporary and non-citizen Actually, folks? both. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, some people who especially um, got married to Korean men, they, we have a lot of... Uh, um, increasing number of international marriages recently. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm from multicultural family too. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, my husband is white uh, male, American. And uh, um, Korean families now have a lot of diverse uh, cultural background, which is very uh, unprecedented in, in our history. Mm-hmm. So these uh, international marriage couple, especially from uh, Southeast countries in China, they became uh, Korean citizens. Mm-hmm. But the, 
whereas uh, foreign workers had actually have a hard time to be Koreans because a strict law about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So because of the multiculturalism and the the changes in um, the needs of education, mm -hmm. uh, what what are some of the most tangible things that that you think have changed? Uh, first of all, as I said, I never had actually um, educational background in terms of multiculturalism and multicultural mm -hmm. education. But now every university has at least a basic course, uh, uh, survey course for multiculturalism mm -hmm. and also multicultural education for uh, pre-service teachers. Mm -hmm. this, this is a huge change. And also, mm -hmm. um, as an in-service teacher, they have a lot of uh, professional development for how to implement uh, multicultural education into the school system. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And it, it, that is also challenging to us as a teacher because uh, we still have the notion of single-blooded nationalism. Yeah. That defines actually what Koreans, uh, kind of about the Korean identity. But now we have uh, different types of uh, cultural background uh, people and they became Koreans. But uh, due to the long-held long ideology or notion of um, single-blooded nationalism, Koreans kind of have a conflicted um, feeling and attitude toward uh, people who have different background. Mm -hmm. Like, do they really, are they really Koreans mm -hmm. or not? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a um, big question for us. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm passionate about this subject, which I'm focusing on um, this, as my dissertation. Mm -hmm. So I like to have more different types of Koreans uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in my country to embrace diverse uh, background mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you could look ahead 50 years, do you think that, you know, an, an older generation will have passed away, presumably, mm -hmm. who really had the single-blooded um, notion in their, their minds and in their experience? Do you, do you see South Korea moving in this direction where it's much more I hope easily so. accepted? Yeah, mm -hmm. surely I really want to... Uh, see that different future because I had a serious experience even in my country on the street with my daughter. Um, not everybody actually think like that. Of course, many people uh, think my kind of different types of family on the street uh, as a future of a Korean society, but at the same time, old generation, people from old generation, they thought it's kind of tainted you know, to their uh, pure blood concept mm -hmm. of Koreanness. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one of um, my experience, harsh experiences, was uh, it happened on the subway with my daughter and actually with my husband too. And one old guy, old uh, person, was very nice to us actually. Um, you know, asking where my husband came from and all kinds of questions. But uh, as soon as my husband left, uh, got off the subway to meet his friend, and he's, that guy uh, attitude totally changed to me, uh, like saying, he mumbled actually, not uh, facing me directly, but the mumbled like, uh, these days young generation just got married to foreigners and that our blood got tainted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you, you know, he didn't exactly direct it, uh, say to me, told mm -hmm. me, but uh, you know, I, mm -hmm. he, was talking about me and everybody heard actually mm -hmm. some way. So I hope, I was angry actually, but at the same time, uh, 
after I got off the subway, what can I do for my daughter? She was little, so she didn't know what's going on exactly. But at the same time, she's going to have that kind of experience yeah. um, sooner or later when we go back to Korea. Uh, what can I do as a teacher or what can I do as a mom? Um, that's why I want to actually focus on my study. Okay, I'm going to educate at least my students, and I'm going to work on this long-held concept uh, with my co-workers, my, yeah. you know, my teachers, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm working mm -hmm. on this dissertation too. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. It's great to have you here. And, and uh, I'm afraid we've come to the end of our segment, but boy, I want to say thank you very much to Angela James, to Greg Hammett, and to Anjung Kim. And thanks to all of you for coming tonight and everybody listening to the program. Um, this was the final World Canvas of this season. The new season begins in September, and I hope we'll see many of you then. All World Canvas programs are available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International programs website. So for all of us in international programs, thank you very much for being here and please say thank you to our guests.